It really is one of the first papers from a large project that I'm doing called Immigration Restriction and the Racial State, which is really derives from my work on quarantine and immigration clearly, but is not primarily about that. And that's a project with Sunil Amrith and uh, legal scholar Jane McAdam. And in that project, we're looking at um, comparative, a big comparative study of immigration and aliens acts. And so we've spent a long time simply gathering together, the simple empirical work of simply gathering together about two and a half thousand uh, immigration aliens acts from English-speaking jurisdictions from about 1798 through, through to the present. And uh, the aim of that project is to think about immigration law in, the, in a long 19th century context. Um, and for me, what drives this um, project was a conference I went to some time ago in Hong Kong after SARS. And I think I mentioned this in the Medicine at the Border book, in which um, some of you are contributors. Um, where some lawyers, um, lawyers spoke in Hong Kong and they talked in, in, uh, after the SARS episode about the regional um, Asia-Pacific various laws um, that could be used to contain people. And when they talked about those statutes and the clauses in those statutes that were being remobilised to, um, uh, to render lawful the, either the deportation or the containment of people after SARS, I found myself, you know, um, almost singing along with them because the clauses in those various laws were verbatim from the Australian Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, the so-called White Australia Policy. And this prompted this large project where we're asking not um, where is the beginning and the end of the Immigration Restriction Act vis-a-vis race and ethnicity, but what in fact is the very long 20th century history of immigration acts and in, what's, in what way and in what sense do immigration restriction acts that developed in post-colonial and decolonising contexts in Hong Kong, in uh, Malaysia, in Singapore and so forth, ironically actually derive from 19th century Chinese exclusion acts. Um, so that's our very large project and I appreciate this invitation very uh, much because I'm not sure that otherwise I would have gone back through our database and looked at the ins what I'm calling the insanity clauses. Um, and, uh, and so this invitation is very welcome indeed. So in the great wave of transnational scholarship on modern global migration, the famous immigration acts, the Immigration Restriction Acts, hold centre stage. Drawing the global colour line, as my colleagues Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds have put it in their recent book, and this was, of course, a core element of the production of nations in the modern period out of human difference. This Anglosphere history, um, most accounts would have it, began with the Chinese diaspora in the 19th century and various Chinese exclusion acts, first in California and the Australian colony of Victoria in the 1850s followed by acts to regulate Indian indenture to restrict Japanese entry later in the 19th century. And, and by the very end of the 19th century, there are generic acts to exclude so-called coloured aliens. 
and all of this in any number of jurisdictions uh, in the Australian colonies, all of the Australian colonies in British Columbia, in New Zealand, in Natal, in the Cape Colony, and later the Union of South Africa, and of course in a slightly different sphere, uh, but I'm looking at it as well, in the US. Somewhat separately, historians of public health, and many of you are here, have traced the infectious disease rationales for immigration restriction. On one view, of course, quarantine measures long predated this upsurge of immigration law. It, it was, I think, the legislative prelude to broader regulation of movement. But we know also that quarantine and modern immigration restriction became and remain thoroughly integrated. In large part, uh, this is what's, uh, what's driven medical historians' interest in all of this, including my own, has been the politics of race and ethnicity embedded in all of the health-based exclusions in the Quarantine Acts as well as the Immigration Acts. So the invitation to speak at this particular conference has prompted me to think about a different element of all of this, a different element of the Immigration Acts. By the early 20th century, Almost every, and I, I, I almost want to say every, but I'm not entirely sure yet, almost all alien and immigration acts in English-speaking jurisdictions included powers to exclude or restrict the entry of idiots or the insane. What were these powers and clauses? What was their pattern between various jurisdictions and over time? including the period after the Second World War, after uh, the, the race powers or the explicit ethnic exclusions had largely been repealed. How do we think about these insanity clauses, as I'll call them, as separate to or as part of the powers to deport or exclude on the basis of race and ethnicity? And how precisely was this part of the history of eugenics? And so for me it's very timely because I have this large immigration restriction comparative project, but I've also just finished um, the book, uh, The Oxford Companion of the History of Eugenics. And so eugenics is very much in my mind as well, and this is an opportunity to bring these things uh, together. So throughout this paper, what, what, one of the things that has struck me is that, and this is going to sound very strange for a conference that has ethnicity as a key word, is that I want to suspend for, at least for examination, what I think is sometimes a too ready and too easy explanation of these processes via the idea of race and ethnicity. Okay, historians will often, let me just talk about the, the, the clauses and give you some descriptions of the clauses uh, in the acts themselves. And many of, this will, many of you will be very familiar with these, uh, with these um, powers. Historians will often presume that the exclusion of uh, will, will, exclude, will presume the exclusion of Chinese to be foundational to the great wave of mid to late 19th century immigration law in, in the settler colonies, especially. But the earliest of such laws in the settler colonies, the British settler colonies, were actually all about bringing people in, not keeping people out. The first Aliens Acts, they're called, in the British North American colonies before Confederation, in the Australian colonies and New Zealand, were all about attracting immigrants and facilitating the naturalisation of so-called friendly aliens. 
In New Zealand law, then, the very first explicit of uh, the explicit exclusion of people was not Chinese at all, which is what we would expect from the literature, but actually Australian colonists. So, in the New Zealand, the first New Zealand Aliens Acts. It is Australian colonists who are explicitly nominated because New Zealand didn't want to build a population from convicts or ex-convicts. And the second explicit class excluded was again not Chinese, but persons considered, quote, lunatic, idiotic, deaf, dumb, blind or infirm, and likely to become a public charge. This was New Zealand's Imbecile Passengers Act of 1873, and it's one of the earliest of such laws. Uh, it was predated just by the Canadian Immigration Act of 1869, designed to prohibit criminals and the destitute, the blind, deaf, insane or infirm, this particular act says, from entering Canada, of course, across the Atlantic. In immigration law, then, the specific mention of insanity emerged quite separately to the Chinese restriction laws or laws to exclude coloured aliens that are so often taken as foundational in in the literature. By the turn of the century, though, it had become quite standard for single immigration acts in one jurisdiction to gather all of the criteria for exclusion together, race-based exclusions, mental and physical health exclusions, political and character exclusions. These kinds of catch-all immigration acts were especially common in the British imperial context because of uh, British governments and many different British governments marked distaste for the explicit nomination of ethnicity or nationality or race. So really important in driving this transnational history is that Westminster by the 1890s just doesn't want race or ethnicity to be explicitly included in any of the British Dominion or Imperial laws. The whole purpose of the 1897 Colonial Conference under Joseph Chamberlain was the diplomatic writing out of race from immigration law. So British government did not want there to be nominated Chinese exclusion acts, did not want Japanese Indians or Chinese or coloured aliens to be nominated at all, um, although the actual practice of excluding those people was perfectly fine. The solution, the well-known solution, was the device in the so-called Natal formula, the use of a dictation test of various kinds as devices to exclude people of various ethnicities without actually nominating that ethnicity. The Natal Immigration Act of 1897 then became a model for the great cluster of colonial immigration acts at the turn of the century. And it included, as prohibited immigrants, any person likely to become a public charge or any idiot or insane person. And a suite of British Empire and Dominion Acts followed, and each of them read very similarly and sometimes quite identically, especially with respect to these insanity clauses. Uh, the colonies of Western Australia and Tasmania in 1897 and 1898, New Zealand 1899, uh, the, Australian, the New Australian Commonwealth 1901, Canada 1902 and 1910, Hong Kong 1904, Newfoundland 1906, Fiji, which is very interesting because it's about Indian indentured labour, 1909, Union of South Africa 1913. And each of these included insanity clauses. And there were other statutes at the turn of the century that focused 
on idiots or the insane specifically. So, for example, there was a Hong Kong imbecile persons introduction ordinance in 1904, which was neither about race nor about infectious disease, but was specifically about insanity. So, dotted through this, mainly the, the insanity clauses are embedded in generic immigration acts. Occasionally, there is an ordinance or an act like that that is specifically about, um, about excluding the insane. Now, sitting very interestingly to me in this major turn-of-the-century cluster of British imperial legislative activity is the United Kingdom's 1905 Aliens Act. And my la this large project, um, it's, it's not really what either Sunil or Jane, my colleagues, actually want to write about, but I find myself <laughs> threatened by a four-year project that is only going to be about the 1905 Aliens Act. It's very well written about, but I think there is so much more to say about it. Clearly, this was about the regulation of Eastern European Jews into... Uh, into the United Kingdom, although, like all of these other laws, it doesn't say so. This first major piece of immigration law in the United Kingdom, in fact, derived from Britain's own settler colonies. Uh, like them, it included a clause that excludes people, a person, quote, if he is a lunatic or an idiot. And as an aside, and this is actually what makes me really interested in the 1905 Act, and it's not the medical history me, it's the political history and me talking. The 1905 Aliens Act actually includes an asylum clause. So it's, that is not mental asylum, but political asylum. So it says if you are, if the person entering is, uh, claims to be a political or religious refugee, I'm sorry, it says if, if the person claims to have been politically or religiously persecuted is the terminology, then none of these criteria of exclusion uh, can apply. And the Liberal government in 1905 sends out uh, instructions to customs and uh, port officers that says that people are to be given the benefit of the doubt if there, is, if there is any doubt about their political or religious persecution. And I'm very interested in this because it's quite clear that... Um, this is all on aside. It's quite clear that this is the only asylum clause, political asylum clause, in uh, immigration law uh, translationally for the period. It's, it's quite um, precocious in, in, in that sense. It's very interesting to me. Um, so, but for our purposes, the 1905 Act also includes this clause about the exclusion of the insane. So what is there to say about these, by then, by the turn of the 20th century, very common insanity clauses and the exclusions that they made lawful? The first point is that throughout place and period, um, unsurprisingly, they were about the public charge question. In most, if not all, jurisdictions, asylums were public institutions, of course, and their um, supposedly disproportionate use by the foreign-born was the constant problematic right through period and place. As Ian Dalbergen shows with respect to Canada and the US, it was often asylum psychiatrists who campaigned to render the exclusion of the insane more effective. Um, and for immigration restrictionists of more nativist or racist bents in the, in the US um, parlance, the disproportionate number of immigrants in asylums was always an expedient argument to harden immigration restriction more generally. The more generous of the acts um, stipulated that the insane might enter 
a country if a resident of the receiving country was willing to provide all costs. Sometimes an almost impossibly large um, bond was sought, £100 for example. Um, but in the main, this public charge is issue underwrote all of these laws from the mid-19th century onwards and for those jurisdictions that still exclude on this basis, it is, it is often explicitly um, the, the modern version of the public charge question that's at issue. So that's the first thing to say. Second, countries of immigration were actively shaping at the turn of the century their national populations to be different from Europe, to keep old world degeneracy, as they would see it, out of the newer countries that were actively aspiring to public health and, and vitality. Admitting the mentally ill to the modern new world was understood as admitting old world pauperism and the creation of a, a dependent class. And the strong new systems of public health and welfare that were just, just then developing in the first decade of the 20th century, especially by la new Labour governments in, uh, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, less so in the US, were seen to be, um, to, to be at risk. So this, was, this coincides with the moment of, of very interesting and active new um, welfare, public health and welfare systems. And it's for this reason that many of the acts included powers of deportation. Often if the person entered an asylum um, for many years after their arrival, in some jurisdictions up to five, in, entry into an asylum after five years after you've arrived is grounds for deportation. The third point to note concerns the changing vocabularies of insanity. Typically, the earliest laws distinguish between uh, uh, idiot and the in idiots and the insane, those born without reason and those who had lost it. Occasionally, in the first cluster, the kind of 1870s, 80s, 90s, um, as with the New Zealand case, the statutes would spell out deaf, dumb and or blind as separate conditions again. But in the first decade of the 20th century, and this will not come as a surprise, the terminology quite suddenly became much more detailed in almost all of the statutes. The feeble-minded became prohibited immigrants in Canada in 1906, the US in 1907, Australia in 1912. The epileptic was added to each of these laws soon afterwards. So in Australian law, for example, the generic, what had been the generic category of the insane was replaced by, quote, any idiot, imbecile, feeble-minded person or epileptic. Um, but that was still not enough. A further clause stipulated as prohibited, quote, any person suffering from any other disease or mental or physical defect, which from its nature is, in the opinion of an officer, liable to render the person concerned a charge upon the public. And in case that did not cover all scenarios, there's yet another clause that says any person that prohibits any person suffering from any other disease, disability or disqualification, which is prescribed. So not once, but in fact three times in that particular amendment, uh, the question of mental health exclusions arise. So this new refinement of mental health disabilities in immigration law I think was a really major manifestation of eugenics on an international scale. Um, arguably, or at least, 
at least I've recently argued in the, the Oxford Eugenics book, I would say this is the major international implementation of eugenic ideas when, as we all know, that the, the whole interesting thing about eugenics is, is that there's so much discussion but actually so, much little, so, so little successful legislation about eugenics. Um, but in this instance, I'm very interested, and I would say that these, this suite of consistent international laws are, I would say now, the most important international actual implementation of eugenic, um, eugenic ideas. So let me take a little bit of time to think about this early 20th century connection between eugenics and immigration restriction. You would all know that a very vast literature understands eugenics as a major driver of immigration restriction acts. Especially in the US context, eugenics is seen to be very largely behind the famous um, quota system introduced in 1920 to limit southern and eastern European immigration. But what puzzles me about this literature is that the racial and ethnic exclusions of the quota system are understood as the main manifestation of eugenics in the Immigration Acts. This follows, I think, from a sometimes too ready conflation of eugenics with race, a tendency to consider eugenics as simply race science. My own view is that it is more accurate to understand eugenics as a set of ideas about mental and physical fitness and disability in the first instance that manifested and was implemented in terms of racial difference in certain ways, in certain places. But what has also interested me in pursuing the history of eugenics is that there are certain places and certain people for whom, for whom eugenics was explicitly not about race and race science. The problem of intelligence, heritability of mental conditions, intellectual disability, and the so-called feeble-minded was, of course, core business for eugenicists everywhere. Um, so what linked eugenics and immigration restriction most squarely, in other words, was less the racial and ethnic exclusions than the insanity clauses themselves. In the Australian context, for example, my colleagues, my good friends, will claim over and over again that the famous Immigration Restriction Act in Australia, the White Australia Policy, was eugenic, they will say, because it excluded coloured aliens. In my view, it was eugenic because it excluded unfit whites, almost all of whom, almost all of whom, 98% of immigrants were from Great Britain and Ireland. The immigration, that particular Immigration Restriction Act functioned most effectively by excluding so-called so coloured aliens by reputation. That is to say very few quote-unquote coloured aliens would actually turn up at the border to gain entry. Uh, it functioned effectively by reputation. They, didn't even, they weren't even on the passage. The people who were on the ships and who were operationally every day actually excluded were British and Irish migrants. And, that, and that's actually what I want to take quite, quite seriously. Um, as reported in the 1920s, the most common grounds for refusal of entry into Australia were, quote, want of physical fitness, deficient height and weight, defective eyesight, deafness, mental deficiency and tuberculosis. 
It went without saying in that kind of list in the 1920s that these deficient and defective would-be immigrants were, were British or Irish. That simply went without saying. Um, and it could go without saying precisely because coloured aliens, quote-unquote, were already so effectively excluded. Almost entirely sidestepped then in Australian historiography is the fact that operationally, every day, it was British and Irish entrants who were most often actively excluded under the provisions of the famous Immigration Restriction Act, under its insanity clauses. So for Australia, whites only, but only fit whites. The US situation was quite different. Even though the laws themselves were very, very similar, and they often read verbatim across many of these jurisdictions, the US never had such a, a dominant single stream of migrants, but always, even after the quota system, had a more diverse immigrant um, demographic. Whereas in Australia, racial and ethnic homo homogeneity was both the ambition and, to some very large degree, the reality of immigration screening, in the US, ethnic difference became important in the operation of the insanity clauses themselves. And so in many ways, of course, the insanity clauses and the national ethnic, the national origins quota system worked in tandem, they worked together. Correlations between ethnicity and mental degeneracy were both easy and politically expedient claims for influential US experts to make, and they did so constantly, and this will be familiar to many of you. One physician pronounced the defective and degenerate tendencies of those from Central and Southern Europe, uh, as opposed to, quote, the sturdy agriculturalists of the British Isles. On the other hand, another argued that the industrialised British Isles produced precisely the kind of um, institution-ready, problematic population that was most undesirable. Far, prefer uh, far preferable, in his view, were Southern Europeans, quote, free from the degenerative effects seen in those classes which have been for several generations factory operatives and dwellers in the congested centres of large industrial pop uh, populations. So, so British and to some extent Ir uh, Irish migrants were by some uh, commentators understood to be problematic because of this uh, you know, Im importation of, of pauperism. There were many studies, needless to say, in the US of the ethnicity of those entering asylums, and this will be familiar to many of you. In most of these studies, the Irish were the first to be discussed. And in US literature, there is a, there is a nomination of Irish ethnicity that is in fact quite absent in the Australian literature, quite an important point that I'd, I'm not sure that I'd quite registered before. Um, to take one example, H.M. Swift, who was physician at a state hospital in, in Maine, uh, offered, put forward one of these studies in 1913. Of the foreign-born population in his state, 7.8% uh, 7 were Irish, but they comprised 15.8% of first admissions to asylums. Once he corrected for age, which is what they always did in these studies, uh, but only after making the first uh, comparative distinction. Um, if Irish adults, he said, constituted 10.2% of the total population of the state, they constituted 15.8% of populations in asylums. And then he notes, as so many of them do, that in Ireland itself the ratio of insanity was high, and this claim is usually made with comparative English 
data in this set of studies. Interestingly, in this case, Swift broke this down to different diagnoses within his asylum populations, and he compares, he uses George Kirby's 1909 study in race psychopathology. I don't know if that book, study or book is familiar to any of you, but he uses that as a kind of a, um, a benchmark for his study of ethnicity in uh, US asylums. And he, he, in his study, he works closely on... Um, differential diagnosis, so the alcoholic psychosis, dementia precox, manic depressive insanity, general paralysis, and senile and organic dementia are the categories that he wants to work out by ethnicity. The first, um, alcoholic psychosis, uh, he says that amongst native-born Americans, 9% uh, suffer from this condition, but those of Irish parentage, 29.6%. What is notable in this study is that when is, is um, the, the kind of shifting um, categories of ethnicity. So sometimes it's about uh, place of birth and sometimes it's actually about parentage. So when he goes on to talk about, uh, about the ethnicity of people diagnosed with general paralysis of the insane, I think it is. He shifts away from ethnicity by where, where the person is born and shifts into the person's native-born, that is to say American parent or Irish-born um, parent. Uh, it was the American-born of Irish parentage, he says, who mainly ended up with general paralysis. Irish-born Irish, by contrast, he says, are, quote, in general a moral people and not prone to contract syphilis. So it's the condition of movement to the US, which he's saying, um, makes Irish people in America prone to general paralysis of the insane. But what did all this add up to for this particular um, physician, this asylum superintendent? This is his last word. Insanity occurs with relatively greater frequency amongst the population of, the for of foreign birth and parentage than among native stock. And from this last, it may be inferred that associated with the three great causes of insanity, heredity, alcohol and syphilis, there is operative in America another potent factor, another potent factor, he says, in the overfilling of our public asylums, namely immigration. So at the end of the day, that's what this whole study was about. U.S. immigration screening took place at point of admission, so when people came to the States, which is not the case in places like Australia or New Zealand. The screening, uh, the screening was actually taken at point of departure. It's a very major difference um, that many of us who were involved in the Medicine at the Border project um, became quite, I certainly became quite interested in. In the U.S., as we know, it's about at point of admission, very largely Ellis Island, famously. One Ellis Island surgeon says that the idiot was easily recognised at a trained glance. Low receding forehead, disproportionately large face with respect to cranium, nose too large or too small or deviated or, or flat, he says. Excessively deep orbits, bad teeth, arching palate. So that's all easy to recognise, they say, in the Ellis Island very swift system. The imbecile, though, needed to be recognised rather more difficult, in a, in a more difficult way through speech. And the feeble-minded were the most difficult because the problems were largely cognitive. And it was here, interestingly, that ethnic 
as well as mental health in, in combination with mental health diagnosis really kicked in. Mental capacity needed to be assessed in this instance, that is to say with respect to the feeble-minded, with respect to ethnicity. The examiner, uh, one study says, needed to know the mean type of the race and thereby know its deviations, they say, he says, by gait or by stature or by expression. So it's about knowing, being trained to recognise ethnicity and thereby um, recognise uh, mental illness. One says the close application to the study of the race is more important in the determination of the mental status of the alien than in the diagnosis of physical abnormalities. So this was about determining normality for any given ethnicity or race. He says, an officer with experience becoming familiar with the different races, studying closely their characteristics, knowing something of their language, can tell at a glance the abnormal from the normal as they pass him on the line. But characteristics, interestingly, were, were less physical than cultural and about affect and emotion. So in, the, in these multiple studies about how Ellis Island um, physicians were trained and trained each other to recognise mental illness in, uh, in the kind of case, the borderline cases of the feeble-minded, it's all about understanding, being able to understand, being trained to recognise normal ethnicity and, and race that is not understood physically but is largely about cultural uh, and, and affective um, questions. For example, one says it's perfectly normal for the southern Italian to show emotion on the slightest provocation, but should he show the stolidity and indifference of the Pole or Russian, we would look on him with suspicion and perhaps hold him for a detailed examination. And goes on, the English and German immigrants answer questions promptly, but should they become evasive, as do the Hebrews, we would be inclined to question their insanity. So they're really interesting studies about how, I mean, first of all for us, you know, how diagnosing ethnicity and diagnosing mental health were, were absolutely um, to, part of the same process, um, but also how um, recognising ethnic difference was not a physical um, or, or biological kind of diagnosis, as it were. It was about behaviour and, and culture and affect and emotion. Um, they say a good examiner will recognise, for example, a thoroughly normal Italian, Greek or Pole before even hoping to recognise a mentally defective one. He says this is like knowing histology before pathology, um, one surgeon put it. So the good alienist in the US at points of admission really needed to know ethnicity um, before he could know and recognise insanity. Okay, so a final reason then to a final reason to complicate the historiography of immigration restriction through these multiple insanity clauses concerns periodisation, um, which is always one of my favourite historical uh, things to think about in, in a peculiar way. Strangely, the end of race-based exclusions has often enough in, in the historiography implied the end of immigration restriction. 
The repeal of devices like the literacy tests or the dictation tests in many jurisdictions, which are the ways in which people were excluded on the basis of race or ethnicity without actually saying so, tended to be repealed some in the 1950s, some in the 1960s. So it's a post-war move. The, the end of explicit racial nominations or the end of the US quota system in 1965, for example, in many, many studies often rounds out uh, analysis of immigration restriction, uh, a kind of a post-war racial equality denouement to the whole modern story. And yet in almost all of these cases, almost all of these laws, the insanity clauses simply continue in many cases, unchanged. Uh, so there, it's, it's absolutely the case that in the post-World War II period, there are very major revisions of immigration law. But um, the insanity clauses, like the infectious disease clauses, actually just continue uh, along. In Australia, the infamous Immigration Restriction Act, the White Australia Policy, was replaced by a new Migration Act in 1958. While the disposal of the dictation test device uh, by which so-called coloured aliens were excluded, um, it, uh, it, that, that is very well known, the continuities between the old Immigration Act and the new and current Migration Act are barely remarked upon by my colleagues. In the new Migration Act, though, and this is still the case, if one became an inmate of a mental hospital within five years after arrival in Australia, deportation was lawful. The prescribed diseases that made a person a prohibited immigrant in the new Act included, quote, a physical or mental disability or defect. And even in the very large 1992 overhaul of Australian migration law, a person is still prohibited, quote, who has a specified physical or mental condition. So this just stays the same. In Canada, a 1952 law took a different tack and became not more general, like the Australian law did, but actually more specific. In 1952, the prohibited class included in Canada persons who are idiots, imbeciles or morons, which is one of the only uses of that terms that I've found in all of these statutes, if they are insane or have been insane at any time, have constitutional psychopathic personalities, or are afflicted with epilepsy. So that's all new. All those spe specific conditions are new in 1952 in Canada. Before that, it was a fairly generic um, statement. Immigrants who were dumb, blind, or otherwise physically defective were prohibited from landing unless they were likely to become, uh, not likely, I'm sorry, to become a public charge or already had family in Canada. So that becomes a little more mild. In Canada, in 1952, under a new law, criminals, prostitutes, homosexuals, pimps, procurers, professional beggars and vagrants, chronic alcoholics, drug addicts, drug peddlers, members of subversive organisations, spy saboteurs, and so on and so forth, are all prohibited. Additionally, and this is important for us, anyone mentally or physically abnormal to such a degree as to impair seriously their ability to earn a living were prohibited. This stays the same in Canada until 1976, an act that removed many of the restrictions placed on the immigration of people with mental or physical handicaps, uh, and this provided the framework for current immigration policy in that jurisdiction. 
In fact, in Canadian law has returned to a broad catch-all uh, prohibition. It now says uh, that prohibited are those likely to become a burden on social welfare or services. That's how it's now put. In the US, the Chinese exclude the US is a very interesting story. The Chinese Exclusion Acts were repealed in 1943. The extensive 1952 Immigration and Nationality Act abolished um, the Asian barred zone, as it was called, and allowed immigration into the US. And this process is often seen to have been completed by important 1965 amendments which removed the national origin system, the, national, the quota system. So that, that is the story of immigration restriction largely in the US as, as it's received. So far, so good. And yet, mental health exceptions were retained. The term in the US law, uh, the term feeble-minded uh, disappears in 1965 and is replaced by mentally retarded. Epilepsy was removed in this instance as an exclusion category. But substituted for epilepsy in the new act are the words sexual deviation. So the same move in US that uh, repeals the uh, national quota system, the ethnic exclusion creates a new system of exclusion for people under the category of sexual deviation, which makes this story all immediately look altogether different, of course. And there were other specific provisions regarding the following persons. One, mentally retarded. Two, insane. Three, afflicted with psychopathic personality or with sexual deviation. Four, a chronic alcoholic. And this brings us to the period then when the UK re-entered the business of serious exclusions. In terms of periodising immigration restriction, the UK stands alone in many ways. In the 1960s, just when other nations were undoing their legislative ties to nationality, race and ethnicity, the United Kingdom was trying to figure out ways to do just that. In its 1962 and 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Acts. But separately to the devices that tried to ensure white Commonwealth entry, that's the whole UK story, was the new insanity clause, a person to be prohibited in 1962 if, quote, he is uh, a person suffering from mental disorder or that is otherwise undesirable for medical reasons. The post-war period was certainly the end of uh, racial exclusions everywhere except the UK, but in no sense was it the end of immigration restriction. So just a few concluding uh, comments. Experts and authorities in countries of immigration like Australia, like New Zealand, like the US, would often present their nations as being in a unique position to shape the character and health of their national populations via immigration restriction. They were correct, I think, about the potential of Im the immigration restriction processes, problematic as they were, but they were less correct about how unique this was. By the early 20th century, an entire hemisphere was implementing such processes. It was not unique at all. Far from it, uh, immigration restriction was becoming increasingly standard. We don't quite see this, I think, if our focus is so solely on the race and ethnic exclusionary powers, which has become the traditional business of immigration histories and historians. But we do see it if the mental health powers, the insanity clauses, are in view. 
The historical global pattern for immigration restriction was not in decline at all. Uh, rather, uh, this is a process of global normalisation in which the insanity clauses represent a very distinct and I think quite important continuity. Thank you very much.